Today, as we turn to the Lord in prayer, I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 25. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Father, we acknowledge you today as sovereign of our lives and sovereign of this earth. We know, Lord, that we struggle each day with the issues of life. We battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And yet the scripture tells us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we know that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Almighty One, dwells within us. And Father, as we look at your word, we study the lives of men and women who in various time frames uh, walked obediently or at times disobediently. I pray from all of this we will learn what it is to truly be your children, to reflect the glory of God into this sin-darkened world. We ask you to guide us as we look at this passage of Scripture today, to teach us whatever it is we individually need to know and collectively can learn. Father, we ask for your blessing throughout this complex today in every class and in the services that your presence will be sensed by all. And Lord, as the word is proclaimed through this city and this state and around these, this nation, we ask that this will be a day when many will be born into your kingdom. We thank you for your faithfulness now to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We are studying in the book of 1 Samuel, the 11th chapter. I'd like to read today, beginning at verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also sacrificed, offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there the Saul, their Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The last few Sundays we've been looking at the anointing of Saul as the first king in Israel. And the conflict that's been going on here, the conflict in the hearts and the souls of the people because God had ordained that the people allow God to be their king and they serve him only, but they have insisted that they have a human king. They didn't want to be unlike the nations that surrounded them. And if that doesn't sound like our day and age, we don't want to be like the people that are around, uh, unlike the people that are around us. You know, uh, even Christian people and, and young people uh, insist often on, on having the marks that are the marks of our society, whether they seem to be good or ill, simply because we don't want to be different. But we are to be different. Israel was to be different. Israel was to be the only nation in the world that was a theocracy, a true theocracy, where the real God of heaven and earth was their king. But they chose not to follow that. Instead, they chose to have a king, so God gave them a king in the person of Saul. And we've noted that he was basically an unknown man except in his small community. But he was uh, very much appreciated when the people first saw him because of his stature. He looked like a king. What we looked at last week in the 11th chapter was the victory that God gave Saul over the invading Ammonites. This was his first test. This is what really uh, brought the kingdom together or caused it to gel 
what gave him his spurs, if you will, or his credentials to, to literally be king. The words that we read in verse 12 here were probably spoken by, I mean, we know they were spoken by Samuel, and probably they were spoken at Jabesh as a result of the victory there, and the city has been relieved, the enemy army has been driven off, the people are rejoicing that they didn't have to go out and have their right eyes all punched out in order to uh, survive, which is what Nahash of the Ammonites uh, was going to do to them. And so Samuel there uh, speaks these words that we read about in verse 12, and, and what the people said to Samuel also. Because they have won this great victory, those that have supported Samuel all along are suddenly feeling very uh, ill towards those who had not wanted Saul to be their king. Remember, we read that in the previous chapter, that some who were called the sons of Belial said, no, we will not have this man to be over us. After all, who's Saul anyway? And they went away to some other direction and said they did not bring him a gift. They did not give him homage. And as a result now, because of this great victory, the others are saying, this is the man we supported, and look, he's the right man, and victory has come, therefore these naysayers should be destroyed. They should be eliminated. The people were addressing Samuel. That's what we're told in verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, but verse 13 says, but Saul said, not Samuel. So they were speaking to Samuel, but Saul responded. And Saul responded in a very negatively to, of course, their suggestion saying that the Lord has given us victory this day and therefore no Israelite blood is going to be shed needlessly to sully this day of victory that God has given to us. He had a magnanimous heart. He, he was in the flush of victory. Uh, he, remember, he had sent out this, he chopped up his uh, oxen and sent them out all over the land uh, telling the people, if you don't come and join my army, this is going to happen to your oxen. And you know, that was a pretty dangerous thing for him to do because the people could have just said, you know, who are you anyway? And how could he have ever fulfilled it? Well, he probably couldn't have. So he was kind of way out in the end of a limb. And yet God had given him the victory. And, and he, was, he was very happy. He was delirious, you could imagine, at this point in time. And so he was willing. No, no, no. These guys have probably learned their lesson. And we will not kill them. At this moment, Saul possessed a measure of humility, a measure of magnanimity. He was not yet driven to that place where he would eventually be, where he was overwhelmed with defensiveness and vindictiveness. I think it's possible, of course, that some of the men who had spoken ill of him had actually now joined him because they had seen the great victory and they had seen his leadership and they admitted to themselves that they were wrong and, and were following him. Probably not all, though, or else they wouldn't have uh, asked that some of them be destroyed. And, of course, the Scripture called them the sons of Belial. And we know the term sons of Belial refers to very reprobate people. And so probably some didn't even come to join in this great uh, victory over the Ammonites. Unfortunately, the wisdom and the humility that Saul displayed at this moment would eventually be replaced by folly and by arrogance. This is a sad commentary on the human race. Pride is our great enemy. Every single one of us has pride, and to a certain degree we need it, a little bit of it, to, to maintain our personhood, but that pride can destroy us, and it would eventually destroy Saul. Saul is here at a very exalted position. 
he's experienced great victory over an enemy. The enemy has been totally destroyed. A city has been saved. He is about to be lauded as king again. And, and they're just having a really happy time at what has happened at this particular moment. But 30 years from now, or 32 years from now, this man will die a humiliating death, abandoned by his people, and of course, because he had forsaken God, uh, no longer was God walking with him. And of course, the tragedy would be, if you've read ahead, uh, at some time in the past, which I know you all have, his body would actually be nailed to the wall of a city whose people had defeated him. It's pretty humiliating, pretty humiliating. The difference was brought about by the fact that he allowed the power and the glory of this position to come to his head and to believe that he was worthy of the power and the position. I think anybody who knows the Lord has to constantly remind himself or herself that whatever I have comes from God. Whatever position, whatever authority I have comes from God. It is not mine, it is his, it is his. Humility to me is one of the most outstanding characteristics of a true believer. Believers who do not have humility, I feel, are treading on dangerous ground and walking in the edge of a minefield and maybe even in the minefield. <laughs> we had a professor for many, many years at Simpson who his actually his first name was Hugh. And of course, he always felt that humility was the best virtue. <laughs> and actually, he was a very, very humble man, uh, a man of great humility and great ability at the same time. And it, uh, he was, a, he was a good example to, to all of us. He made the decision later in, in life as he served as king to follow his own will and his own desires rather than those of the Lord to honor and obey God above all. In everything we are to give God honor and glory. In everything we are to give honor and glory to God. And Saul didn't. And this, I think, was the result of his not walking daily with the Lord not seeking God daily in prayer, not seeking God daily through his word. And this will result in a person drifting away from his root. We too frequently see this happen in the church. And it is tragic where apparently those who are serving the Lord throw it all over to chase after some folly. And we've seen it happen over and over again. And we have just seen it happen in this, I'm not talking about any of the leadership of this church, but we've seen it happen in this church within the last few months. Openly, blatantly throwing it all over to chase after folly. This does not happen to men and women who develop and maintain an intimate relationship with the Lord. If we're walking every day with God, we don't chase off into folly like that. We're immediately convicted. The Spirit of God speaks to us instantly because we're in prayer, we're in His Word, where the opportunity for that conviction comes. Such a relationship, of course, can be developed and maintained not only by going to Bible studies and, and care groups and church services. That's, that's essential, but it's got to be beyond that. It's got to be a one-on-one -on -one with God every day in prayer and in His Word because we need commitment and submission. That submission has to be every day. It's usually because we're not submitted to him that we walk off on some rabbit trail and chase after some foolishness and they go, oh, well, God won't care because we, we take this one saved, always saved concept and beat it to death. 
I think, well, you know, one day in the past I gave my heart to the Lord, so now it doesn't matter what I do, I'll still be saved. Well, I don't think we, we can trust in that idea uh, too much. Oh, yes, I, I believe that a true believer is always a true believer, but I think a true believer is one who walks by faith and, and demonstrates the reality of that walk each and every day of his life. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin. We all sin. But to, do, to go so foolishly far away I mean, look what happened to David. You know, he went foolishly far away, but God smacked him upside the head in a, with a real two-by-four, and uh, he straightened out. You just wonder about those who don't, you know, still act foolishly and continue off in their ways. Whatever happened, is there no two-by-four? It could be because they don't really know the Lord, never really came to honest faith uh, in him. There's a passage. Let me just read a verse to you. You know it very well, uh, but I'll read it anyway. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we read, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit of God is very strong. He's almighty. But we can grieve Him. We can grieve Him by disobedience. Uh, we grieve Him by ignoring Him. We grieve Him by chasing after our own desires and our, our own will rather than His will. If we, per, if, if we faithfully, day by day, pursue God through prayer and through the study of his word, after how else can he speak to us? I'm not limiting God. I'm, I don't say God can't literally speak to us because I've heard of people whom I believe who literally say God said something to them. But how does God generally speak to most of us most of the time? He does it through this book. So if we're not reading the book, it's like we got our ears shut off. We, we don't hear so what does a person who is walking with God look like? Well, let me just read one passage out of many, of course, that could be read that gives us some idea of what we ought to look like. Colossians 3, verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. So compassion should be a quality. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience bearing with one another. You know, you got a roommate who's a pain in the neck, bearing with one another. You got a husband or wife who's a pain in the neck, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and what? Be Thankful. It's amazing how many things thankfulness covers up. If we just constantly have a heart of thankfulness in the midst of everything, it, it just covers a multitude of problems. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to the God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. <laughs> That's just one way in which we look, we appear, uh, if we're walking faithfully with him each day. And if that's happening to us, we aren't going to go very far down that rabbit trail before we run into that two by four. I really believe that. And those who continue on down the rabbit trail and, and go chasing after something and, 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 and bring dishonor to the name of the Lord, they're not listening, or possibly they never 
had the ears to hear in the first place. Saul is a man who displays wisdom and humility in his early years and then goes downhill from there. You and I are supposed to be walking upward, walking more faithfully with the Lord every day, not starting high and dropping down. It's kind of like when I first took a, way back in my college days, I was taking, taking tennis as a sport I had to take, and I got appendicitis. That kind of knocked me out of tennis. So I had to take up something, you know, while I was getting over that, I'd take up something a little less strenuous, so I took bowling. <laughs> well, you know, I, I bowled a little before, so I took this course, and, and uh, the first day they didn't tell you that you're, you, you bowl, just show how you can do it, and they didn't tell you that from there they were going to check your progress from that point, you know. I never bowled as well after that day as I did that day. It wasn't all that great, but it was better than I'd done before, uh, than, than I did later. So, you know, <laughs> hopefully in the Christian walk, we're moving upward, every day moving upward. Oh, sometimes the road goes like this, but nevertheless the general trend is upward, uh, not downward. For Saul, it seems to have been downward. In verse 14, oh, by the way, I, I don't know if any of you get a chance to listen to, uh, I, I've mentioned this before many times, Dr. Lutzer, uh, he comes on at 8 o'clock? 8 o'clock Sunday mornings, and uh, to me, there isn't a better uh, pastor I've heard anywhere speak, anytime, anyplace, TV or anywhere else than he, because he gets right smack to the point, all this gibberish. Uh, and uh, this morning, it was, to me, one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard. Because he talked about the fact, he's dealing with Achan, you know, and how when Achan sinned, all of Israel paid for the sin. And he said, that still applies. When there's sin in a camp, it affects the whole camp. If there's sin in the church, it affects the whole church, not just the individual. People can't say, well, it's my sin, none of your business. No, no, no. <coughs> it connects to us all. It connects to us all. And um, I think that's, that's really true. We are all connected through Christ into one body. We're told by Paul, we are one body, the body of Christ. And if one part hurts, the whole body hurts. And therefore, we are individually responsible for ourselves before God, and we're responsible to the whole body of Christ. And that's why prayer is such an important thing. It links us together. It bring, builds that communication within the body. And that's why it's so key. I, I'm just really sad seeing what's happening Sunday night. We started out three Sunday nights ago with a great video, and we had, I don't know what the, how many were there, but it must have been at least 100 people, and then the following Sunday it was 50, last Sunday it was 30. That's how many people think prayer is important, you know, the kind of prayer that really needs to happen, and unfortunately that that, that is true, because I think prayer is the powerhouse of the church. Without it, you might as well forget everything else. It isn't going to happen. Anyway, Back to this little passage here in the 14th verse of 1 Samuel chapter 11, we read that Samuel commanded the people to go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. Why Gilgal? Town down in the Jordan Valley, not too far from the Jordan River, not even up in the highlands where the bulk of the people were. Well, I think he said Gilgal because that was the first place in the promised land that Israel arrived. It was the first place they set up the tabernacle. It was the place from which they conquered the rest of the nation. So it was sort of like the fountainhead point in the nation of Israel. And so they went there. 
by Samuel's command. The people who had been at the victorious battle there at Jabesh all went down there, streamed down there to Gilgal to meet there with Samuel. Samuel could have done what he was going to do right there at Jabesh. <laughs> but you know, sometimes there are hard things we have to do for God to do what he wants to do in our lives. I keep thinking about Moses. I mean, Moses had to spend 40 Think how long 40 years is. 40 years chasing sheep through the wilderness just to get ready to do what God wanted him to do. That's a long time. And we might say, wasting his life out there. I mean, who, what does it matter who's watching sheep? You know, could be somebody who's never going to become anybody watch the sheep. But God sometimes has us do things that don't seem very significant to prepare us for things that are and in his view, significant. And sometimes what we don't think is significant is significant anyway. We have a very worldly view of things sometimes. What is important? Well, that which brings fame, that which brings honor, that which is before everybody. The, mo the best person in the church is the preacher and, and the singer. No. They're essential, but the essential people uh, are the whole congregation. And the person who's on his knees praying for that service is really the most important person in the whole place because that's where the power, that's, that's the plug into the wall, you might say. The rest of it doesn't happen without that plug in the wall, without that prayer to God. Why did God choose to do it that way? So that we will be involved. He wants us to be an essential part of the work that he's doing. This is the final stage of the inauguration of Saul as king in Israel. We know all about inaugurations since we just had one this one that we had was far more elaborate. Saul didn't go to a ball or any of the other things that were part of this. Uh, well, they did have a kind of a party, but it wasn't uh, the same. We remember that Saul was first anointed by Samuel at Ramah. And then he was physically chosen by Lot when all of Israel gathered together at Mizpah. And now they're going down to Gilgal where he was to be reaffirmed by public acclamation after a great victory. He had demonstrated his leadership ability. He had delivered the nation from foreign attack. He had won his spurs, so it was he was now worthy of the crown. So everybody was going to down. You know, before when he was chosen by Lot, they said, Hail Saul, I think, <laughs> whoever this guy is. You know, he's our king. Well, at least he's taller than everybody else. I guess that's good. But now there's enthusiasm behind the selection because a great victory has been won. He's led them in brilliantly in battle. And so they were glad to put the crown on his head. I don't think all of Israel knew what it meant to put a crown on somebody's head. Israel had never had a human king. What does it mean? You know, it's one thing to have a king. It's another thing to be the subject of that king. You know, we have a president, and uh, we're to pray for him. But we're subjects of this government. Of course, we have a different attitude towards it because we're a, quote, representative democracy, and therefore power is with the people, supposedly, sovereignty of the popular sovereignty, as John Locke called it. But um, in Israel, it wasn't popular sovereignty. It was a king. A king uh, rules, and the people are subjects. They're not, the power didn't rest in the people. It rested with God, really, but through the king. And so people were going to have to learn how to be subjects. They were going to learn how to be the people ruled by the king. And I don't think it takes a huge leap of thought to bring that down to what it means for you and for me to be subjects of the king with a capital K. God is king. It's easy for us to say that because it's you know, quite obvious. I think we believe that. 
But what does it mean to be a subject to the king? Hmm. That's another story, and that's what we struggle with, I think, all of our lives. Being a subject of the king, serving him, doing his will. There on the plains of, of the Jordan River, and when you get down there towards where Gilgal is, the Jordan Plain is, uh, begins to become quite barren. You're getting down towards the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is surrounded by almost no vegetation. Uh, there are just little places where vegetation comes down through one of the wadis from the highlands, but it's mostly a barren area. Of course, the Dead Sea is not called the Dead Sea for nothing. And there on this relatively barren plain, Saul was officially proclaimed king, and he was offered the homage of the men of Israel. They came and they offered him their homage to seal the recognition of Saul as king over all the tribes of Israel. Peace offerings were made to the Lord. Peace offerings. And the significance about peace offerings is that peace offerings are not required. You go back and read about the peace offerings in, in the Pentateuch. The peace offerings were not required. They were voluntary. If you wanted to do a peace offering, fine, but God never said, thou shalt do a peace offering at da-da-da, such a time or such a place. No, it was a voluntary offering that was to be made. It was a communal offering. It was an offering where a sacrifice was made to God, usually of at least one or more animals, depending on the size of the people, because this was going to become not only an offering to God, but a barbecue. <laughs> Potluck, if you will. It was all part of what God was about to do in Israel. The purpose of the peace offering was to express devotion to God. And thanks for bringing them shalom. You know, peace offering, peace offering. P-E-A-C-E, peace offering. We, we've talked about this before, but the Hebrew word shalom means more than just peace as we think of peace. Well, peace, it's not noisy. <laughs> We're having some peace this morning. <laughs> it doesn't just mean that. The Hebrew word shalom means more fully wholeness. We are whole. We are complete. It means well-being. And so when you say shalom to somebody, you're saying a whole lot more than hi or howdy. <laughs> you know, you're saying peace, wholeness, well-being, everything that we can think of, may it all be yours. And that's what this offering is about. An offering being made to God and thanking him for wholeness in our lives, for well-being in our lives, not just that we're having a tranquil moment. So this offering was given, and portions of the animal that were not actually burned on the altar and which were, were not reserved for the priests then were spread through all the people, and uh, they had a good time sharing in this offering with a communal meal. And at the end of verse uh, 15, we read, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Can we visualize that? We visualize these men all sitting around in groups around fires and, and the offerings have been made and they're sharing in a great feast, celebrating their victory, celebrating their king, and celebrating their future. Unfortunately, in our country, we can't celebrate a very long future as a result of a victory of a particular person for the presidency because in four years we have another election and who knows what can happen. We've already seen what could happen. So it's kind of short. But in this case, you know, in perpetuity, as far as they know, this king is young. He's going to live a long time, and hopefully there will be a smooth transition to another great king. And, and so they're celebrating their future as a kingdom. They now have what they wanted. God is blessing them, and they have their king. Let's read on the next chapter, chapter 12. Then Samuel said to all Israel, 
Behold, I have listened to your voice in that you said to me, in all that you have said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you with, uh, from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whose hand have I, from whom, whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you and is anointed his witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. This is a very formal occasion. And Samuel is very serious here. They've had their party. Now it's time to do serious business. The time and the place are not stated. It could have been there at Gilgal, maybe somewhere else. Most likely it was at Gilgal. In this speech, Samuel is yielding the reins of power. He is giving authority to Saul. He has been the Shofat, God's chosen leader in Israel now for lo these many years. And he is yielding that authority now over to Saul. Therefore, on the occasion of this address, first verse, first few verses of chapter 12, you are seeing the official transition from theocracy to monarchy, from an Israel led by God through the Shofatim, now to a nation theoretically led by God, but through a, a king who, as we'll see shortly in the life of Saul, will cease to listen to God. It's a big transition. It's an important transition in the history of Israel. Samuel began his proclamation to the assembled tribal leaders by absolving himself from any responsibility for the establishment of this monarchy. He reminded them that, yes, I have appointed Saul, I have anointed Saul to be king over you, but it wasn't because I thought it was a good idea because Samuel knew that this was not God's best plan. And he had, of course, emphasized that to them before. He pointed out the obvious, of course, when he said, Robert. How much time elapsed between now and chapter 13, 9, when Saul starts messing up? How much time do you think? Not long. Yeah, one page. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> the time is quite short, I believe, because it, it seems to hearken all the way back to Samuel's original orders to Saul. And so I think it all happens within the first year, probably the first few months. It doesn't take long sometimes for someone who is very shallow in his commitment to the Lord I suppose we could get into a very long theological debate here, especially about the seed that fell on various forms of ground, rocky ground and shallow ground and good earth and all the rest of it. And what does that all mean theologically, you know, about salvation? Uh, are there those who are sort of saved, those who are saved for a little while, those who are then really saved? Or uh, I'm not going to get into that today. But I, I think that we have to look at all of this within an Old Testament framework, of course. And things were... We're different. We have Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God the Father, yesterday, today, and forever. 
but there is a different way at which God dealt with Israel before Christ was sacrificed on the cross than the way he dealt afterwards. And there's a different way in which the Holy Spirit manifested himself uh, in the believers and in the church than before. You know, I'm not a firm believer in dispensations that, you know, there's an hour for this and an hour for that and an hour for something else. But, but I do believe that God does operate sometimes differently from one era to the next by his own sovereign choice. And he makes statements like that uh, in Scripture to indicate that. And so in Saul's situation, uh, whatever we can say about Saul's eternal soul, God only knows. All I know is he died in a horrible, humiliating situation. And the Scripture does say that God removed his Holy Spirit from him. So Saul was a man about whom it is never said that he was after God's own heart. Beth? Another, another lesson might be that he went from poor self-esteem to inflated self-esteem. And it's a lesson to us that we, when we see someone who doesn't think highly of himself, the end goal is not to help them think highly of themselves, but to focus on God. Because he went from hiding behind the baggage to starting to take too much credit for his height and his wisdom and thinking he was more than he was and then thinking that God wasn't really that necessary. And the, the better his self-esteem, the worse his position with God. And I think it's a, a danger that we get into today with the whole self-esteem thing. Yes. <laughs> I hope you could all hear that, but it, it was good. How, how do we, I suppose it's a, it's a struggle of how do we somehow fit in between self-exaltation and worm theology. Somewhere in, in between there. <laughs> where I have to reach up to scratch a worm's belly, I'm so low, you know, to the point where we take credit for what God is doing. And I think that's what brings down many leaders of the church. Right? I think that's what ca has caused um, pastors uh, from time to time to fall because they have taken credit for what God has done thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. And of course, the question is finding out where the ought is. <laughs> How highly ought I think of myself? Well, higher than a worm, at least, probably, you know. Maybe a way of looking at it would be uh, to consider God as your source of everything that you are. Oh, yes. And therefore, there's no esteem in yourself if you consider God as your source. Yeah. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think that's kind of a balance, isn't it? Because it says, I can do all things but through Christ. Only through Christ. Yeah. And the rest of that verse, Romans 12, 3, mm -hmm. we, uh, let every man think soberly as God has given yeah. him a measure of faith. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, go back down to the worm theology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. This is good. Try to find some kind of, I don't want to use the word happy medium because Saul's going to be messing around with the medium here pretty soon. <laughs> and I'm not too sure many... <laughs> But, but finding the place where we should be in Christ. And uh, again, it goes back to whether we know the Scripture or not, doesn't it? Uh, I think so. And, you know, some could read into what Samuel's doing here, too, is that Samuel's going, oh, you know, here, uh, in saying, I mean, look what I've done, you know. Can anybody bring a charge against me? But that really isn't what Samuel is doing here. He does absolve himself, as I said, of responsibility here. Uh, he goes on to state the obvious. He says, I'm old and gray, which they could all see. But what he meant by that was I was coming to the end of my, I'm coming to the end of my career. 
and you have rejected my sons from being in my place. And I'm not sure that he was saying that with any maliciousness because I think he himself knew that his sons were not worthy to take the place of their father. But he says, therefore, here you are, standing right before you, is your choice, here is Saul. This is what you've asked for, you've got it. He then turns their attention to himself more specifically. And he reminds them that he had been in public service ever since he was a small child. I mean, he was about three years old when he was first brought to Eli to begin his training. And uh, we're told fairly early on in his life, certainly long after three, but probably in his early 20s, that every word he spoke in way of prophecy came true. And all of Israel acknowledged this, it seems. But his statements and the... Um, Israelite leader statements, which are written here in verses 3 to 5, uh, cut two ways. First of all, they affirm that Samuel has been a right and just leader, but on the other edge of the sword is the insinuation that maybe the kings that follow will not be right and just. And that's really why he's saying what he's saying. He gives an open challenge there in verse 3 for them to produce any evidence that would impugn his integrity. He said, here I am, I'm standing right here, I'm vulnerable before you, before God, and before your king. Name anything uh, that I have done, whoops, that has brought harm to you. <laughs> Too much hot air blowing over that away. <laughs> he said, give public witness right now. If I have defrauded anyone, acted unjustly, or accepted a bribe, a bribe <laughs> at any time to pervert justice. The leaders of Israel affirmed that Samuel had served them with complete integrity. You know, isn't that such a contrast to what we know in our society? How many men step down from power as president or governor or whatever it is about which it could be said that they served with total integrity? I'm not denying there haven't been some, but it sure doesn't seem like they're the majority. Of course, most of them are not Samuel either. He then asked them to make a deposition right now, right here, before the Lord and the King. And the people did it without hesitancy. We affirm this is true. Was Samuel on an ego trip here, wanting to hear good things said about him? Was he interested in his legacy? Was he trying to make them feel bad about replacing him with the King? Well, the answer is no. He was not on an ego trip, and he is not trying to make them feel bad. He is establishing a standard. He's establishing a standard here against which Saul and all subsequent kings would be measured. Have you served as a king receiving no bribe? Have you served with integrity throughout your reign? Because you remember Samuel had said to Israel, you will rue the day that you asked for a king. Well, how will they know when to rue the day? Well, when these standards are transgressed, when you have a crooked king, when you have a king who takes bribes, when you have a king who takes your children and offers them to some pagan god, when you have a king who, who sends your sons into useless battles where they die, I would really like to know just for the sake of knowing how many men have been sent to their deaths for no reason through history in battle. And I teach World Civ at the college and we talk about wars and so many wars have been fought for no good reason and for no gain. And what do you have? Millions of dead people. And that's all you have. That's all that's changed. 
that would happen to Israel because their kings would not live according to Samuel's standard. He wanted them to have guidelines so that they would be able to say, this king has deviated from the standard of Samuel. I think Samuel gave full credit to God, though. He's not saying it's because I have been a good guy, but I have served God. I was the shofat. He was the ruler. He was the king. But now you've chosen, chosen a human king, and you will pay the price. I think one of the overarching lessons out of all of this is that God has a perfect and right plan for each of our lives. And sometimes we can choose to rebel against that plan, and God will continue to be in our lives, but we will now be at a different level than what he intended for us to be. And, and he will use us. He still will work with us, but it won't be what it could have been. It won't be what it could have been. Well, next Sunday, we'll look at uh, verse 6 and following of the 12th chapter of 1 Samuel.